I've actually always wondered what it'd be like to sit at a potter's wheel. And man, oh man, I could mess up William's work right now in royal fashion. But I'm not going to touch it. Because the reason I'm up here is not to get a better feel for what it's like to sit in this chair. The reason I'm up here is to get a closer look at what it's like to be on that wheel. Uh, And that's where I invite you to go as well. On the potter's wheel. Not to get dizzy turning around, but to be shaped. We're in the midst of this series called Cultivate. It's based on the Beatitudes. We're going through these eight statements that Jesus made at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. But here's the overall context. We're told that Jesus launched his public ministry, and that's at the end of Matthew chapter 4, and he went about proclaiming, preaching the good news of the kingdom. Now, the kingdom of God's not a place, it's, this, it's, it's, not a, it's, it's not a particular place, it's the realm in which he rules. For you to be a part of the kingdom of God, for you to be a part of the kingdom of God, is a matter of our submission to him as our king. We can be in the same place and one person be in the kingdom and the other not. To be in the kingdom is to be on that potter's wheel, to be underneath the authority and the shaping of the king. Now, the first recorded message that we have of Jesus proclaiming the good news of the kingdom is this sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And it begins the good news. And it is good news. A lot of people don't think that it would be good news to be part of the kingdom. They think that would be suffocating. No, it's not suffocating. It's liberating to be led. Most of us as human beings, we want to be on the potter's chair, not on the potter's wheel. Because we want to be in charge. But to be as part of his kingdom, we're on the wheel. And we willingly get out of the chair and say, Jesus, you made me. You know best how I operate, so would you shape me? And what he's doing at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in these eight statements that together are called the Beatitudes is talking about how to begin to be shaped. These eight statements are cumulative. They are progressive. There's a specific order to them, but they're not isolated. They build on each other. If you've got your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now, if you don't own a Bible, please go back in the back and ask us. We'd be glad to give you one. We'll put you on a bunch of religious mailing lists as well, but uh, we'll give you a Bible in return. Just kidding. Verse 1, Matthew 5. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, and he said, blessed. Now, the word blessed there is a unique word. It's the word, root is makar, makarios. It means a deep happiness, deep contentment, and satisfaction. Uh, It was up to that point thought to only be achievable by Greek gods and goddesses because it's a contentment and a happiness that transcends human circumstances. That was kind of what the word meant. And here Jesus is saying, you can can experience makarios. You can experience its deep blessedness. And it comes from being on that potter's wheel, from being underneath my leadership, my kingship. This is how you get on the wheel. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By the way, every one of these is emphatic, meaning theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are in the kingdom are those who've humbled themselves before the king. Those who've said, you know what? I'm going to stop my pride of being on the potter's chair, and I'm going to humble myself and get on the potter's wheel. I'm going to acknowledge I don't know best how to run my life. I'm going to acknowledge my spiritual bankruptcy. Everybody is poor in spirit. It's the ones who acknowledge it that begin to experience that makarios. It's owning up to my sin, my rebelliousness. And then second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Mourning is a, is a turning, it's a repentance saying, I'm sorry for my sin, and turning to him for comfort. Jesus tells us in the upper room discourse in John 14 that the Holy Spirit is the comforter. Theologians will say if, in the progression of, of if this is a conversion passage, this is the moment of conversion in a, in a sense. So the Holy Spirit, the Christ Spirit taking up residence in a person's life, we're being comforted. But then we become meek. If, I, if that blessedness is to go deeper, that happiness, I become meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness isn't weakness. It's my potential under control, underneath the shaping of the potter's hand. And it's, it's the meek, those who submit to that, who are the ones that will be part of the new heaven and the new earth. Then we'll begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness in this journey, for they'll be filled. The only people, we all have longings. Every human being does. It's a God-shaped longing. And the only people who are filled, who are satisfied, are those who direct that longing to rightness with God and with one another. And then we'll be merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. It's acknowledging that if I've really received the mercy of God, that will be evidenced in me being merciful to others. If it's just a religious thing, That'll reveal itself because I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be a pipe. I'll, I'll be a blocked up conduit. Uh, all of the good news of the gospel comes into me and I don't give it away. My, all my abilities God gives to me, I won't give it away. My finances, he, he, he shows mercy to me in his financial blessing. If I don't give it away, all of a sudden you see a, a blockage. My, my time... All of my creativity, my efforts, everything that God is pouring into me, I'm to pour it into you. So this is, these are not statements for us to just deal with individually. These are communal in, uh, realities and truths. And now we come to today's beatitude, verse 8, blessed are the pure. Now religious people, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, but the religious people of today would say, oh yeah, there we go, blessed are the pure. Mainly thinking that purity is an outward compliance with some behavioral standards. Maybe they're biblical. Most often in religious circles, they're extra biblical. Different subcultures or religious subcultures make up different rules, and, but blessed are the pure, and it's a behavioral, it's a, an appearance thing. Jesus shatters that by the next clarification. He said, blessed are the pure, what? In heart. In heart. For they will see God. They'll see God. God cares not just about our outward religious appearance, He cares about the heart. In fact, in Samuel, Saul is being looked at as king, but 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, 
meaning Saul's, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? Okay, there's more of you here than that. The Lord looks at the heart. If I'm going to understand what it means to be on that potter's wheel, I've got to get this and understand it's my heart he's after. Now, a person's heart is not just their emotions. My heart is the epicenter of who I am as a human being. It encompasses, I mean, in, uh, there are almost 800 references to the heart in Scripture. It's only about 600, a little less than 600 references to heaven. The heart is, is talked about so much as being the control center. It, and you look at all of those different verses and you see references. It refers, yes, to the emotions, but it also refers to my, my will, uh, my motivation, my thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Uh, it refers to my actions. It refers to my thinking. It refers to my conscience. A person's heart, when engaged causes them to be there thinking more clearly, they're feeling more deeply, they're acting more intentionally. And so when we're talking about the heart, we're talking about the core of who we are, not just our religious category over here. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says, if you want to really taste the gospel, it's not going to be just you getting a doctrinal statement and intellectually saying, hey, I agree with that religious belief, which some people do, and they call that conversion. There are other people that think it's just an emotional thing. If I have this high, this warm feeling, then I, I must be coming to Christ. Or other people, if you do something, maybe if you keep enough rules or you walk down an aisle or raise your hand, that's, that's what gets you converted and into a, a relationship with God. Paul says this to the Romans. He said, it's the heart. It's all. It's mind, emotions, will. It's my whole being. Verse 9, Romans 10, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe. My belief manifests itself in my behavior, and it starts with my heart, all-encompassing, thinking correct thoughts about God, being moved by his love for me, and then living that out. He says, it is with your mouth you profess your faith and are saved. So, for me to get on that potter's wheel, it's a heart issue. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Set apart Christ as king in, in the center of who you are. Now, with that as the backdrop, I want you to hear Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. All of us have become like one who's unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So your best efforts at impressing God religiously by keeping rules and so forth are like filthy rags. We've all shrivel up like a leaf. Like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you've hidden your face from us and you've given us over to our sins. Yet, there is hope. You are Lord, you're our Father. We're the clay, you're the potter. We're all the work of your hand. And this passage is about being rebellious mud, being rebellious clay, and saying, you know, we have, we have no business thinking that we belong here on the potter's chair, we belong on the potter's wheel. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, it's those who from a, on a heart basis are acknowledging his kingship and his kingdom. So what will that look like? What will me submitting my heart look like? It looks like, not this, hard, 
It's like when you leave Play-Doh out, you know, for too long, it becomes like a brick. Where's your heart right now? Where's mine? Saying, God, I, I want to submit before you. What will it look like? Let me give you four benefits. These are also really four heart postures for those who are pure in heart. Number one, being pure in heart will mean that I'm submitting to his cleansing. To be pure in the noun form, that, that, that uh, in the verb form, that word means to cleanse. When a potter is starting to center the clay, and there, there's so much in the art and craft of, of pottery, but he's also feeling for foreign elements. Things like a rock, if it's in here, a rock will not be pliable. So he needs to deal with it, take it out. If not, later on when it's on the wheel, that rock could wreck the pot or whatever is being crafted. A lot of people think that they don't really need cleansing or maybe just a little. Putting themselves on a spectrum, you know, there's, let's say there's, in, his, in history, there's Hitler here on the sin spectrum, and let's go over here, and Mother Teresa is over here. A lot of us say, well, where would I be on that? Now, well, I know I'm not Mother Teresa, but I'm sure not over there. I'm probably over here. Let me tell you something. We're all over here, including Mother Teresa without Jesus. So how much sin requires cleansing? How much sin is necessary for God to say, I need to clean. Well, when the Olympians do their blood test for, for drugs, there are two categories. You're going to be in one of two groups. Your blood's clean, your blood's not clean. You say, so the smallest amount of sin is enough to put me over on this spectrum. Yes. Anselm, one of the early church fathers, wrote a classic Cordes homo, it's a what is man. And in it, he says over and over, we have yet to see and understand how terrible a thing our sin is. In other words, how it separates us from God. And we have no hope of dealing with that by our behavior in terms of, hey, let me behave my way out of my sinfulness. I need cleansing. I don't care how respectable I am. Ivan Turgenev, he was an early 19th century Russian novelist. He wrote this. He says, I do not know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. He got it. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9, who can say, I have kept my, my heart pure? I am clean and without sin. But he can. The posture of being pure in heart, of being clay on the potter's wheel, is to say, in Psalm, the words of Psalm 51, verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. To what end? What are we after here? Religious pridefulness that we got it all together? No, the purpose of the cleansing is restorative. 
back in 1508. Anybody know what happened that year? <laughs> there was a guy named Michelangelo. Don't know if you ever heard of him. He decided to lay on his back on some scaffolding and proceeded to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in Rome. Spent four years painting a masterpiece of the fall and the flood. But almost immediately, the colors of that fresco began to fade. The pollution of medieval Rome and the coal fires burning and all the dirty air and the grime put layer after layer. And really, when art history began to be a thing in the 20th century, most art historians thought that Michelangelo was not someone who was into color. He was truly a sculptor, and they said he even does his sculpting in his painting. He's more interested in form, not color. But then in 1981, two art uh, restoration uh, historians and artists had been experimenting around because they'd noted there was grime on it, how much they didn't know, and they, they came up with a solution and tried it in a small corner of the Sistine Chapel, and voila, there was beautiful color underneath, so then they proceeded to restore the entire ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. It took about eight years, twice as long as it took to paint it. When they were done, art historians had to change their tune about Michelangelo. This man did understand color, the vibrancy of the Sistine Chapel. And for that color and that vibrancy, listen, to be restored, the cleansing had to happen. The purpose of the cleansing is not just some, hey, let's get in line. It's to be restored to the beauty of who we're called to be as human beings created in the image of God. And sin mars us from that, causes us to fall short of reflecting the glory of God. And so to be on that wheel, to be pure in heart, is to submit to his cleansing. But there's a second posture, a second benefit to being pure in heart, and a second meaning to it. It's not just to submit to his cleansing, it's to submit to his purpose. To submit to his purpose. There are plenty of purposes that I could pursue as a human being. But to be pure in heart is to be focused on one purpose, and that is the potter's purpose for me which he has one. See, the, now, the, the verb form of this word pure means to cleanse. The noun form means unmixed. Pure is unmixed. We use it, pure air, pure water. What's it mean? It's not polluted. It doesn't have any, any uh, outside unclean stuff in it. No, no, no rebellious stuff, no variance. It's a sense of being unmixed. James reveals this flip side of the meaning of purity of heart in James chapter 4, verse 8. He says, purify your heart, you double-minded. So that would purify, he's saying the way that can be corrected 
uh, is to reverse this double-mindedness. In other words, become single-minded. Psalm 27, 4, one thing I've asked from the Lord. Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, this one thing I do. So often we're, we're trying to do a, a lot of different things. You know what a flexitarian is? You ever heard of a flexitarian? We've heard of a vegetarian, right? So a flexitarian is somebody who's a vegetarian most of the time. In fact, I read an article, this, this girl said, I'm a vegetarian, but I like sausage. So I have to be flexible every now and then. I mean, this was, this was a, a, a powerful moment in our earlier service. People's whole journeys got clarified. I had people coming up to me, I never knew I was a flexitarian. That's okay when it comes to vegetarian stuff. Being a flexitarian is not okay when it comes to following Jesus. Because it's, it, I, it's, it's being on the, the, the wheel and off the wheel, on the wheel and off the wheel. There's his path, there's my path. And the potter says, this is my purpose for you. And when I say I want to be a flexitarian, I'm going to go here. He says, no, I want you to be pure of heart. That means, yes, to be cleansed, but it also means to be single-purposed. We're commissioning that group, a couple of groups around. Love those commissioning, but there's one group headed down to Brazil, to uh, the jungle down there. It reminded me a number of years ago, I was speaking at a pastor's conference in Ecuador. And in Ecuador, you've got half of the country to the east, it's rainforest, and the western part of the country is the, the, the sandy plains going down to the ocean, and Quito is up on the mountain in, in the middle. Flew into Quito with three other guys I'd invited to come with me, and before we uh, headed over to the pastor's conference, I had arranged for us to be in the rainforest with a, a tribe uh, called the Waldani. Now, the reason I wanted to to meet them is because the story of five missionaries being martyred by this tribe had impacted me deeply years ago. In 1956, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Roger Udarian, a couple of their other friends, five of them, were all trying to reach an unreached people group and deep in the jungle, this savagely vicious group of people called the Alcas. That was a derogatory term. They didn't know it at the time. It meant savages. Uh, Since we've discovered, they refer to themselves as the people, the Waldani. Jim Elliott uh, was somebody that had an amazing walk with God, and they so wanted to share the love of Christ with this tribe. They had an intermediary that uh, was, they were slowly letting them know, we've, we mean no harm, we simply want to come, we've got good news for you. And it came the, the, the day for a meeting on a beach, a sandbar, basically, deep in the Amazon, and instead of coming in peace, this tribe sent their warriors and they speared all five missionaries to death. And that January morning in 1956, global missions was impacted deeply. Men and women caught this story and many headed off. I talked to somebody between the services. They were impacted so much. That, was, that story of Jim Elliott and his friends uh, giving their lives is what caused them to go into missions, to global proclamation and service for the gospel. Well, after that horrific day, Elizabeth Elliot, Jim's wife, 
And I found out about a lot of this. I went to Wheaton College, and so did Jim Elliott. Uh, his wife, Elizabeth Elliott, and their daughter went back to this tribe at the tribe's invitation. This tribe that had killed her husband taught them the scriptures. So many of them have come to Christ since then. Steve Saint, Nate Saint Stun, is, is the one who set up this this meeting between me and this tribe. And so we flew in, landed on this jungle airstrip, and several of them met us. And the leader was a guy named Minkaye. Minkaye is an older man. Nobody knows how old he is. He doesn't know how old he is. As, uh, obviously, there's no birth certificates or anything in their tribe, but he was the one that had speared Nate, uh, Steve Saint's father, Nate Saint, to death. And Steve and Minkai, after Minkai came to Christ and Steve as a young man went and lived with the tribe, they became close friends. That's what the gospel does. Steve, close friends with the man who killed his father. And Minkai is deeply, deeply uh, hurt over what he'd done and, and very grateful for the cleansing that took place. So Minkai took my pack, insisted, we're hiking through the jungle. And it's not the reason I'm telling this story, kind of a sidebar, but I, I, I will tell you. So we're, we're hiking along. We've got machetes and all of that stuff. And then all of a sudden, they, they all start laughing. All the guys, you know, this, this small band of, of men. And I asked the translator, I said, what are they, what's so funny? And they said, well, they've given you, you're, you're given you as the leader a nickname. I said, really? What's the nickname? And so he said it in Waldani. And then they all howled again. <laughs> I said, what, what's it mean? He said, it means giant matchstick. <laughs> he said, you're really, you're really long and you're white and you're red on top. <laughs> so that night, Minkai was like that. He was the one that gave me the nickname. He was just so happy. He had Makarios. We were sitting around the, 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 the fire, and he shared about what changed his life was leaving his trail and taking God's trail. That's how he described it. He said, I, I can't walk both my path and God's path. It reminds me there's a West African proverb uh, that says, the one who tries to walk two paths will split his pants. <laughs> we can't be flexitarians. There's a purpose that the potter has for me, that the king has for me. And we, we're to pursue it. Psalm 84. Teach me your way, O Lord. Shape me. Teach me your way. And I will walk in your truth. I'll walk on your path. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I'll praise you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart. Let me give you a third posture. Third benefit of being pure in heart. Third meaning to being pure in heart. It means I'll be, submit to his cleansing. It means I'll submit to his purpose and with single-mindedness. But it also means that I'll submit to his fulfillment. This clay has a purpose. And, and that clay is, will not in any way, shape, or form be more happy and more fulfilled than fulfilling the purpose that the potter has for it. 
My fulfillment is a heart issue. A lot of times we think our fulfillment comes from what we own or what we wear, our appearance. No, the scripture says fulfillment is a heart issue. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Above all else, pay attention to your heart. Guard your heart. Because it's the wellspring of life. You want to know the centerpiece of your fulfillment of mine? It's my heart. Psalm 16, verse 11. says, God, he uses a phrase, you've shown me the path of life. You make known to me the path of life, that path of fulfillment. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And to be pure in heart is to be fulfilled because it'll involve being cleansed, and also called. There's a fourth benefit. Fourth heart, just a heart benefit. And it's what Jesus says at the end of the beatitude. And here's number four. To be pure in heart is not just to submit to his cleansing and to his purpose and to his fulfillment. To be pure in heart is to submit to his vision. His vision. His way of seeing, of seeing Him. Go back to the Beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they and they alone will see who? God. The result of being pure in heart ultimately is seeing God. And that's the key to fulfillment, seeing God in the way that I do my life. Now, there is a faraway fulfillment of that and, and a close-up fulfillment of that. Far away is the new heaven and the new earth. We shall see him as he is. First John chapter 3, verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So that purity is related to seeing God. So that's, that's our hope of that beatific vision one day. But there's also a close-up, a right-now fulfillment of this beatitude. And it has to do with the way that we see. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18 says, I pray also that the eyes, it's a fascinating phrase, the eyes of your what? Heart. Helen Keller one time, the woman who was blind and deaf, she was asked, it it must be awful being blind. She said, "Um, better to be blind with your eyes and be able to see with your heart than to be able to see with your eyes but be blind with your heart. Seeing with the heart, he says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. My heart being shaped enables me to see life differently. Matthew chapter 13, verse 14, Jesus says, Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. So what's the problem? For this people's heart has become callous. It's a heart issue. 
when I can't really see reality as God sees it. When I won't see reality as it really is, it's because my heart is hard. But when he's shaping it, I start getting the vision of, of God. I, I start being able to see my life differently, to see what's important, what's valuable. I, I begin to see even what's happening here differently, what's happening in this church called Northland. I see it differently when my heart begin, is on that wheel and being shaped by the potter. Though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear, understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecies of Isaiah. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ear, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. So to be pure in heart is to be able to see things differently than other people see them. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, the early 19th century poet, she said, every common bush is a fire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest, rest of us sit around and pluck back blackberries and daub their natural faces unaware. Somebody who's pure in heart sees a Monday morning very differently. There are God sightings all over the place. It's the ability to perceive what we weren't able to perceive before, and it has to do with us letting him, letting us letting him shape our hearts. There's a, a company called Enchroma. I have no connection with this company. I, I don't own stock in this company. I'm not advertising for them. I just want to show you something. They have developed eyewear. They look like sunglasses, actually, that correct color blindness. So people have been colorblind all their life. They haven't, they've heard that maybe they know they're colorblind, but they have no idea what color looks like. And just vi viral on the web, some people have just taken iPhone videos of friends and family members who are seeing color for the first time. Take a look at this video. Your phone looks different? It's like this looks very, like pretty similar, but this pink, like this. <laughs> Look at your kid's eyes, Petey. They're so pretty. Can you, is it very noticeable difference? Oh, yeah. It's, it's, I'm shaking. <laughs> and so Mindy puts on... <laughs> what do you see, Mindy? Yeah, what do you see? <laughs> Don't cry. Must work. You can tell orange. Yeah. What else is it? What are you talking about? The streamers. Wait a second. Ah! It's green. I thought it was all orange. How did I think it was all orange? That's green. <laughs> Whoa! Whoa, look at that red! Is that red? Yeah, it's kind of like a reddish pink purple. That's really cool. <laughs> that bush right there? Amazing. Mm. Mm.
Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. They and they alone are the ones that will see God at work in their lives and God's purposes being worked out and His agenda for the cosmos that He is not just about making us religious and giving us a church experience, but calling us together as a community of His people who are pure in heart, clean and also engaged with His purpose to say we will see what He's calling us to right now differently than anybody else would. The reason that I am so hopeful for where we are at Northland is because of God vision that so many of you have and the way that you're saying, do you see it? And guys, it will involve all of us being on this potter's wheel and letting him shape us. And as a result, we're going to see God and his hand in our individual lives and our life as a church and a community and his work on the cosmos. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, may we hop out of the chair and onto the wheel. May we become pure in heart. And it's not perfect. We're we're not going to get it down perfectly, but every day coming to you for renewed cleansing, coming to you for renewed purpose and single with it, that we pursue with single-mindedness, coming to you with a, a fresh taste of your fulfillment and coming to you to let you shape the eyes of our heart a little bit more, to see the hope of your calling and the riches of our inheritance with the saints and the surpassing greatness of your power that's available to us who believe. Oh, Lord God, May Northland Church be, a, be pure in heart. I pray this for the glory of the potter as well as the fulfillment of the clay. Amen. Amen. As we've been doing in the series, we want to give you some savoring time. It's not to get your stuff together. It's to just rehearse. Say, what has the Holy Spirit been saying to you? So just take a few minutes and watch the potter. We've given you some questions to focus on. And imagine yourself on that wheel as God shapes you. Let's be still and listen to him and let his spirit continue to shape us. And then we'll dismiss you.